Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa usalli wa usallam ala sayyid al-awwalim al-akhirin. Nabiyyana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa barik wa sallam. All praise are due to Allah, Lord of the worlds. And peace and blessings be upon our beloved Prophet Muhammad, the master of the first and the last, and upon his family, his companions, and all those who call to his way and establish his sunnah to the day of judgment. My beloved brothers and sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. <clears throat> Alhamdulillah, uh, this is the continuation uh, of our course on uh, the miracles of the Quran or the miraculous nature of the Book of Allah. And this course is intended to um, <clears throat> give us a different understanding of the book that we have in our hands. Because for many people, um, the book basically means um, tilawa. It is a recitation. It's something that you read. For some even, it's just really a decoration. So it may be put up in the house, it may be put onto the clothing or on the wall, uh, <clears throat> and it may be just what appears to be a decoration. But the great scholars have shown us that um, to gain the true essence of the book, there's three aspects. And that is tahseen tilawatihi, wa tadabbur ayatihi, wa itba' awamirihi. So the first is to read it uh, with tajweed, to learn how to read it with, uh, in the proper way. Second is to reflect on its meanings. And third is to follow its commands. So this class really is focusing on the second part, which is tadabbur ayatihi. And that is to start to now think about what is actually in the book. And if we can recognize um, the profound nature of the Quran, that this is literally the words of the creator of the heavens and the earth revealed to us from above seven heavens, then we be can begin to um, really look at it in a different way. And that is to look at it not only for uh, ritual, but to look at it for meaning and guidance. And so in this light, there are many different ways for this tadabbur. And we chose um, the concept of i'jaz, and that is the miraculous nature uh, of the Book of Allah. Other scholars looked at it merely from a grammatical point of view or merely from um, a uh, ahkam, the laws that come out of it, but we want to look at it uh, in relationship to the miracles. And as we understood uh, in the last session, <clears throat> a miracle itself, because we have in our literature, in our understanding, mu'jiza. There's a concept of mu'jiza. This comes from the verb ajaza, and ajaza is to be unable to do something, something that's sort of beyond you. Right? And so a mu'ajiza is a miracle given to um, the prophets. And the term that's used, if it happens with a person who's not in a prophetic state, is karama. So there's a difference between mu'ajiza and karama. Mu'ajiza comes to the, the prophets, but karama can come to somebody else who's not uh, a prophet, but yet Allah blessed them uh, literally to have a miraculous event. Uh, to take place. For instance, to give you an idea of karama, uh, one of the great leaders uh, 
the great uh, Khalifas, Omar bin Khattab When he took over as the leader of the Muslims, the Persian Empire had attacked the Muslims from the eastern side. And it was a, a major empire with a huge army, and the Muslims had to defend themselves. He sent forward Saad ibn Abi Waqqas uh, and his forces into uh, Iraq. And when they were in a particular area, the Tigris-Euphrates region, there was a group of the Muslim warriors uh, led by a person named Sariya. And they were moving uh, to carry out a mission and in front of them was um, a mountain uh, with a pass. And the enemy were in ambush. So that if the Muslims went through this pass, the enemy would then hail down on them stones uh, and then surround them uh, and defeat them. And Umar al-Khattab was in Medina. And as reported, he was given the khutbah of Jummah. And something uh, came up inside of him. Some sort of feeling came up inside of him. And so he, he, he shouted, Ya Sariya al-Jabal. Right? And obviously the people in Medina probably looked at him like, you know, something's wrong with him. Because Sariya is a thousand miles away or so. But he said, and then it is, Sariya reports later that they heard Umar's voice like booming loudspeaker. Today for us, it would be like a loudspeaker saying, Sariya, the mountain. And then when they thought about that, then they reanalyzed the mountain, and they were able to strategically move and to defeat the enemies. This is Karama. They did not have mass communications, um, and it's something purely a, 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 a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is what you can call, and this is a definition that we had so, because the scholars bring definition, you get a lot of books on miracles of the Quran. It is a supernatural event. So, this event which took place, again, it could happen to a prophet or someone who's not a prophet. It's a supernatural event, the acting, doing, performance, and formation of which is beyond the scope of man's abilities and understanding. So, at that time, it is beyond their scope to be able to communicate sound uh, you know, all the way over to Iraq and it's loud. Today, that's not that strange. We have the ability to communicate and then to increase the sound in the other area. Um, and with a good sound technician, a good crew like we have here at IIT, um, you could boost the sound uh, and save uh, the Muslim forces. But in those days, that's beyond their understanding. That's, super, that's what we call supernatural, you see? So people are um, unable to do something like this. This is the miracle. And the other part which is important um, that is said by other scholars is that this miracle cannot be magic. It cannot be magic or deception. And magic, we know, is, is a science dealing with uh, the jinn, with demons, and dealing with deception. Uh, it cannot be uh, something done through the so-called uh, you know, magic uh, forces, and it cannot be a uh, trick of the eye. You have some magicians today who can actually psychologically uh, move your eyes and your sight, and you can't notice something that is actually happening. That's a deception, right? So that, that would not be a, considered a miracle.
Okay? And the miracles, um, we know that the great prophets of the, of the great prophets of Ulul Azam and Al-Rusul, there are some prophets who are considered to be uh, the most resolute in carrying out their message. From them was Ibrahim alayhi salam. And uh, Ibrahim was, as you know, was saved from a fire. He refused to believe <clears throat> in the idols uh, of his people at the time living in Iraq. And um, because of this, and with the big idols that were there, um, he, he, put, uh, he smashed the idols, left one, put a stick in its hand, and when they returned, he said, ask your idols. So they realized what he had done, and they gathered the people together, and they built a huge fire, and they, they threw Ibrahim salam, in the fire. The normal quality of fire is destruction. So his body should have been burnt to ashes. And some uh, books describe it as a huge fire that they had, not a little small campfire. This is a huge fire, like a huge house, like fire all in it. Um, and this is the Quran, uh, chapter 21, verses 68 and 70, is one of the places that talks about it. The fire became baradan was salama. It became cool and a peaceful place for Ibrahim alayhi salam. So the quality of the fire is to destroy, but yet it became cool, the opposite of the heat, and a source of peace, the opposite of destruction. Okay, so that is a miracle. And when it finally died down and the people were waiting just to pick his ashes up, Ibrahim Islam was sitting there. So this is mu'jizah. Okay, and this is a famous one of the Ulul Azam and Rusul. Also of the Ulul Azam, uh, Musa alayhi salam, Nabi Musa, uh, as you know, he was given a staff uh, and given power by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Fir'aun at the time, the Pharaoh, his power was not only technological. The Egyptians built huge pyramids. They had great philosophy. They were far advanced to people in other parts of the world in many different ways. But one of their most powerful uh, tools for domination was magic. It was magical practices. And many groups in the occult, in the occult actually date their um, teachings back to the, the pyramids. They'll go back to the pyramids and pharaonic uh, uh, you know, priests, the high priests that were there. And so he, the Pharaoh gathered together the people, the priests threw their, their sticks and ropes and whatnot, which turned into snakes. Musa salam threw his, and it turned into a serpent and ate the snakes of the priests. This was a miracle. This was not magic. They knew theirs was an illusion. But Moses came and broke all of their illusions right in front of their eyes, and they actually embraced Islam. They embraced the teachings of Musa salam, and they suffered for that. They died at the hands of the Pharaoh, uh, but refused uh, to give up anything, refused to change their faith. Right? So these are, this is another great miracle of the prophets. And the miracles sort of meet the times. So in other words, um, 
the, 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 the power of the fire. The people in those days believed in the fire. They were called Majus, Zor Zoroastrians. And they kept the sacred flame burning all the time. They believed that the power of God was manifested through the flames. So flames were a sacred thing to them. So the fact that Ibrahim could now live in the flames, you see, this is uh, something that's like, he's got to be like a god. You see, so that miracle met their times. Also in the time of Musa -Islam, with the great magicians that he had, this was right in line with what was happening in the times. Another one of the Ulul Azam of the great prophets of resolution was Jesus Isa salam. And at a time when um, the Yunani and Rumani medicine, their medicine was very high at the time. And they had developed um, uh, a very powerful science uh, for curing people of physical ailments. Uh, but there were certain things they couldn't cure. And so Isa salam, through the power of Allah, he um, made, had the lepers, uh, made them uh, clean, their skin clean and pure by the power of Allah. He, uh, he prayed for them and uh, performed the miracle with blind they could see by the power of Allah. So he was doing things which was beyond their medicine. See, so it fit the times. It exactly fit the times. And, and, and that really is one of the power, powerful things about the Mu'ajizah. And when you're in another period of time and then look back at it, it might not seem that great. But if you're in that particular time period, it's unbelievable. The power of it is overwhelming. Similarly, in the time of Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, he had a number of different miracles. There were people, Ali, Ali ibn Abi Talib, عنه, he was wounded in the Battle of Khaybar. The Prophet took his saliva and he put his hand on it, made dua, he could see. He, uh, a large army, he brought in a vessel, you know, with food, they all ate. Also, vessel with water, they all used the water. Okay, these are, for Christians, would be big miracles, like Jesus feeding the people fish, right? These are big miracles for the Christian. It happened to the Prophet But these were what is called temporal miracles. They are based on a particular time and a particular place. What the Prophet Muhammad was given is an eternal miracle. And that is because he is not the Prophet only of his time period, but he was chosen, as he said, to, uh, as the last Prophet, sent to humanity and the jinn, the, the demonic forces, until the day of resurrection. So therefore, the miracle that he had couldn't be one of the temporal ones. It had to be something that lasts. Okay? This is the Quran itself. Okay? So that is the power in the book. And what we are trying to extract from the book are some of these miracles. And we can see now one of the... Um, advantages we have living in the 21st century is that science and technology has reached a very high level and so we are able to um, understand certain phenomena 
which were mentioned in the book. People might have read it before and not even understood what it meant. But now we can understand it in a different way. And from amongst the different miracles in the Book of Allah, what is considered by the scholars to be the greatest miracle is actually it's in the language itself. And that is the fact that because of the fact that the Arabs at the time were masters of their language. They did not have fine porcelains or rugs or palaces, but they mastered their language and their poetry was a rich poetry. And Arabic is a very unique language. It's a very unique language. That is because when you speak Arabic, you are using all the different parts of your mouth and your throat. When you speak English, we're basically using the front of our mouth. Okay, if you start to learn French, you have to start using your throat now, right? Make certain sounds. Difference between French and English. It's pronunciation, right? When you start to learn other languages, you'll see that you're using other parts. Arabic is using all the possible parts of your deep throat, middle throat, upper throat, sides of your teeth, upper and lower. It's using everything. And it has a letter, dod, da, the sound of dod, which is not found in any other language on earth. And so it's considered to be logata dod, the language of dod. Right? So therefore, when people, uh, when Arabs traveled to other parts of the world, it was easier for them to learn other people's languages. It was easy because their throats open up. It's already opened. So that they could switch over to the sound that people are making because their throats opened, right? If, if your throat is not opened, like in English, we are seriously restricted. It takes a long time to actually produce certain sounds, right? And you have to literally sit when you're learning Arabic and other languages and spend a lot of time just on certain sounds, whereas Arabic-speaking person already has the equipment. Okay? So with that equipment and with a vocabulary that is very expressive, you know, then they could basically say what they wanted to say. So when the book came to them in a form that they had never heard before, and they knew their language. A person could listen to a few verses, a small little chapter, and embrace Islam. They changed their whole lifestyle because of a few words, right? That today is not possible for people generally, unless Allah really blesses somebody. Because language doesn't mean all that much to us uh, today. And so the Quran has a challenge in it also. It challenged uh, you know, humanity and uh, said to them very clearly, say of the whole of mankind, Say, if the whole of mankind and jinns were to gather together to produce the like of this Qur'an, they could not produce the like thereof even if they backed each other up with help and support. That's a serious challenge. What other book can do that? Shakespeare, even the Bible itself, 
which the Bible has gone through a lot of changes. We don't have the original Bible because the original Old Testament and New Testament were written in the Hebrew or Aramaic tongues. We have translations. But even the translations themselves right, change. So if you get an old translation of the Bible and you get a, a, a new translation, the language changes. This language doesn't change. Right? And so this is a challenge. It's saying, bring us, bring it to us. Okay, and, and it's serious because it's saying even magicians. And remember the jinn, um, and for those who have, were not in earlier classes, the jinn are created from smokeless fire, as human beings are created from clay. The jinn are created from smokeless fire. And the first, uh, the most powerful of the jinn is Iblis, the shaitan himself, and in the beginning of time, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had created the creation and is going through stages of change, right? Vegetation, animal life, dinosaurs, different phases of life on earth. Okay, there is a phase where jinn are created from smokeless fire. And fire has a lot of qualities in it. Okay, and so the, the fire being created from it doesn't mean that they're little flames. No, it just means that they're created from it. Like we are not pieces of clay, right? But the elements of the clay itself uh, of the earth are actually within our bodies. Okay, so um, this Quran then is saying, if you gather all the jinn, all the human beings, everybody together, you're not going to be able to deal with this. Okay, and this challenge comes in many different ways. So basically in... Um, uh, based on what we studied the last time, and just as a summary for you, um, where has humanity failed? Where is the i'jaz? Right? The i'jaz is to replicate the Quran's literary form. Okay? This is one of the areas. The Arabs had at that time poetry, and they had prose. Okay, so this, um, in a sense, was a new form of rhyme prose. They even had prose that had some rhythm to it. But this was a new form of rhymed prose. So in other words, you are telling a story. Uh, you have a long uh, narration, and it's in rhythm, perfect rhythm. Okay, the Arabs did not have that before. When they dealt with their rhythm, their poetry, they knew their poetry. They knew the lines. They knew the rhythms. They even had different systems you could get into when you're reading your poetry. This is completely different. Okay, so nobody has been able to replicate this up until today. And they tried. And of course, this is an Arabic language, right? So if you're in Arabic language, they have tried to do this. They couldn't do it. Secondly, they could not match um, the unique linguistic nature of the Qur'an itself. It's the use of language. It's how deep it is. And it's like, um, as we learned before, as the Qur'an is beginning, and it is saying to us, Alif Lam Mim, Thalikal Kitab La Reba Fi Hudalin Muttaqi. So in the beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah, second chapter, it says Alif Lam Mim, that is the book, or this is the book, in which there is no doubt a guidance 
to those who have the consciousness of Allah. Okay? Now, the use of thalika. If I had an object and I say, uh, it's close to me, a book, I say, hadha kitab, hadha. Ma hadha, but if it's far away, I say thalika. Like this and that, right? So if you say thalika in, in, in Arabic, you can't say it to something that's close to you. When you use dalika, you use it to something far away from you, right? So in this case, it says, this is the book, it's coming far away. It gives you a picture of the book far away coming at you, okay? This is a usage that they never had before. They never used their language like this before, right? And, and, and it gives a type of um, literary flavor uh, to it. It's a richness and a usage of the terms. Three, select and arrange words. Uh, they failed to, to, to select and arrange words like that of the Quran. Okay, the way the words are arranged, how they are selected, they failed to do that. Four, they failed to select and arrange similar grammatical particles. Now, we had gone into some of this in the earlier class. It gets a little bit tedious uh, there at times. Um, but for those into Arabic language, um, the usage of the different particles, how they are used, never done before. Okay? Five, to match the Quran's superior eloquence and the sound, the the, the, really the, the eloquence of it, in speaking of something which is happy uh, or something sad or something evil, the, literally the sounds change, the words will change, okay? And um, it's, it's a powerful thing because, for instance, if Arabic, um, you know, has for, um, it has male, it has masculine and feminine, okay? English, we say he walked and she walked. Right? Plural, they walked. If you saw two people, you would say they walked. The two of them walked. If you saw a group of women, you say they walked. Group of men, they walked. You use the same verb, right? But in Arabic, every single one of them changes. For a, a, a masculine, it would be one thing. Feminine, another thing. Two, another thing. Two women, another thing. A group of men, a group of women, a mixed group. All of it changes. So, for instance, if you listen to people speaking Arabic in another room, if they're speaking classical Arabic, right, and it's far away, you didn't hear the tone of their voices, you could tell if it's women or men talking because of the verbs, how the, the verbs are, and how the sounds of the terms, right? Not just high and low voice, but the, literally the language itself, you could tell if it's feminine talking or masculine talking. So, for instance, I, when you say, when you greet, you say, Assalamu alaikum, really you should say, I should say, Assalamu alaikum. And for you, Assalamu alaikum. Kum is the plural, right? And we say that out of respect. So, literally, uh, there's a way to talk for different groups. And this, the sounds, gives you the feeling it is a powerful force talking to you. It's something powerful talking to you. 
right? This is a special thing within the language itself. Okay? Also, people fail to equal the frequency of rhetorical devices. And there are certain devices, repetition and use of certain terms. Nobody has done anything like this before. Okay? Now, the two points that we will be looking at more, and we'll touch on some of the other ones again, seven is to match the level of content and information. Okay, so we're going to look at the content within the book and some of the information that's coming out of it. Okay, because this is more relevant to us unless we were Arabic speakers. And even people who speak Arabic, it's got to be educated Arabs. A person who's not educated speaking Arabic is going to get lost in the class, like everybody, like everybody else. Educated person knows the nuances and the changes in the language itself and can appreciate it. So for us, we, we focus on number seven, uh, content and information, and eight, uh, people fail to equal the Quran's conciseness and its flexibility. Okay, so it's flexible. It's for 1,400 years ago, 1,200 years ago, future. It can even deal with technological age. Okay, that's the flexibility in the book. So we want to look at some of these uh, different aspects in order to understand uh, the miracles of the Quran itself. Are there any questions? Uh, this class is a workshop as well. So if you have any questions about anything, uh, the floor is open for any questions anybody has so far. Everybody's okay so far? Now, um, again, what we will look at in terms of the meaning, too, that we touched on the last time, there are certain meanings um, that apply to everybody. So in other words, anybody who is faced challenge with this particular verse or this concept relative to science, doesn't matter what religion you are, if you have no religion, you're going to look at this book and say, oh, this is something. I, you know, how do you do this? Right? But there are other meanings that if somebody believes in it, this is for believers, that you believe in it, it actually uh, gives you another type of look at the book itself. And we're going to look at some of those meanings uh, as well. So tonight, um, for the first class that we have, we wanted to look at uh, some of the meanings in terms of um, the earth itself. Okay? Now, in looking at mountains, and we know the mountains of the earth uh, are really spectacular. We are blessed here in Canada uh, with amazing mountain chains, especially if you go to the west. If you travel across Canada, it's a beautiful thing on a train, and you travel Alberta and some of those areas, and you'll see beautiful mountain ranges. And <clears throat> the mountains go uh, right down into the United States. There's a Rocky Mountain Range that's there. Uh, on the east coast, you have uh, the Appalachian Mountains, and there are different mountain ranges. And uh, the science of studying mountains is a very interesting science uh, because mountains really play a very important part uh, in the earth itself. And it is only recently, it's only since about 1960, that they were really able to um, penetrate this science. This is tectonics. Okay, so this 
And because we have now the ability to penetrate even into the earth uh, with you know, our devices to see below the surface of the earth, um, we are able to see some amazing things. So in one case, um, there's a famous professor emeritus, Frank Press, and he came up with, with the theory, which is now recognized because of our technology, that the mountains uh, have underlying roots. So in other words, just like when you see a tree, right, the real tree, the strength of the tree is below the ground. And based upon what type of a tree it is and what its needs are, the roots will actually move underneath to support the tree. So the little things sticking up, that's not the whole tree. Okay, it's the same thing with mountains. And um, they came up with the concept that um, uh, the roots, uh, these are deeply embedded in the ground, and thus the mountains have a shape like pegs. They have a shape like pegs. Okay? And so the modern theory of plate tectonics, it holds that the mountains actually stabilize the Earth's surface. It's literally like, like you took a peg and you pounded it in uh, to stabilize it. Okay, so this is the concept that they came forward with. And um, this is an example here uh, of how it goes. <clears throat> and they've come, they use the Appalachian Mountains, um, but it's similar in the Himalayas and the Alps. Uh, and so the formation of it, you can see where the surface of the earth is, right? And now below it, um, how the roots actually go down into the bottom. Okay, so this is the, this is the concept of uh, the plate tectonics. And um, the Quran itself mentioned Have we not made the earth as a bed and the mountains as pegs? We made the mountains as otad. And the word otad, watad, literally means when you set up a tent and you have the pegs that you use to put the tent, the Bedouins would put them into the tent to hold your tent down, this is the otad. So the Quran is saying that the mountains are like this otad that you put on the sides of your uh, tent to hold it in place. Okay, so this is the description. And if you begin to look at different mountain chains, this here is the Swiss Alps. And the Swiss Alps, a uh, beautiful mountain chain in Europe, um, is one of the ones that um, you're able to really see uh, how they form because Switzerland is basically a, a set of mountains in a circle. And it was on these mountains that the different tribes um, formed like a unity. And that unity, a type of what they call socialism, that set up Swiss society, okay? And Swiss are famous today because the Swiss banks, or you have your Swiss knife, right? Uh, especially the banks, all the rich and famous put their money in the Swiss banks. But one of the, the important things about Swiss, Switzerland is the type of um, democracy or socialism that they have, that they have a rule where they listen to all, all of the people who have a say in the government. 
and it was based upon these tribes that were literally in the mountains uh, surrounding uh, the base, right? And that's the essence of what Switzerland actually is. Uh, but for us, of course, the key thing is uh, the pegs, okay? Secondly, in terms of the mountains, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the 16th chapter, verse 15, and he set firm mountains in the earth so it would not shake with you. So in other words, the, the mountains are there to stabilize. It stabilizes the earth because otherwise, because of the nature, the hot, gaseous nature inside the earth, there would be, you know, it would literally, it's literally trying to come out. And the crust of the earth is holding the molten lava, uh, literally holding it together, right? And the pegs are literally holding the crust onto the lava. You see it? And the weight of the pegs is literally holding it in from all sides. And if you look at mountains around the world, you will see that they are strategically placed in order to literally keep the surface uh, of the earth together. And um, this is a shot, uh, a distant shot of the Himalayas. And the Himalayan mountain chain, which is considered to be the largest uh, mountain chain, is also, um, you know, you can see it, how it is set in Asia, uh, literally, and how it holds down that part of the world. Another interesting mountain chain is the Andes Mountains. And the Andes Mountains is in Peru. Uh, much, of it, much of it is in other countries, but mainly, you know, the, 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 it, it's an amazing set, actually. And uh, what they found out is that the mount is a spine. It, it dissects South America in two, right? So the Andes Mountains affects from the South Argentina, Bolivia, Chile, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Venezuela, all of these countries that literally dissects South America. And this is a, a dramatic shot from the Andes uh, mountain. You can, you can literally follow the chain uh, and you can see how it's literally holding down uh, the earth in that part of the world so human beings can live. And you go north to, to the North America and then you'll see the Rocky Mountains, Appalachian Mountains, like literally holding down our section, right, so that we can live. Okay, so the, the amazing, when this was put, this information was given to uh, um, scientists, they were shocked. They were shocked. Because it's only from 1960 that they actually could penetrate the surface to know how deep uh, the pegs were under the ground, that literally these things could be like pegs. They never knew that before because nobody could penetrate the earth like that. And the question is now, and this is the air jazz now, how could a man who lived in Arabia 1,400 years ago, right? Bedouin society, no mass communication, never traveled to a place where a mountain was. I don't think he even ever saw a mountain in his life. He saw some hills. Right, but not mountains like this, of this size. Okay, because when they say Mount Arafat, right, 
These are like hills compared to this. It's nothing compared to these mountain chains. He never even saw a mountain like this. How could they go underground to know this? You see? This is the i'jaz. That's the question you have to ask yourself. And when it's put to people, they can't answer. They literally cannot answer the question. Okay? So this is the first uh, one we wanted to look at in terms of the earth um, and the amazing thing with the mountains. Any questions uh, anybody has? Uh, any comments or questions about this? Yeah, I mean, like I say, the mountains in Hejaz, he, he traveled through, um, but not, um, he did not, they did not, I never saw anything where he went on the top. They actually went along the routes below and passed by, but never really, um, especially the dramatic size of these mountains here, okay? Because they're, they're not as, um, uh, as huge as this uh, and as big. And in any event, the important thing is not the top anyway. The importance is the bottom. Right? How can you know what is below a mountain? Okay, so this is, this is an amazing discovery uh, that is in the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, another thing about the mountains, uh, and, and you'll see um, that in Surah Al-Fatir, it is saying, Alam tara anna Allah anzala min as-sama'i ma'an fa'akhrajna bihi thamarat thamaratin mukhtalifan wa min al-jibali judadun. So the word here is judadun. Then it says, bidun wa humrun mukhtalifan alwanuha wa gharabibu sud. So here the word uh, that they look at is judud. And what this means is, it said, do you not see that Allah sent down water from the sky with which we brought forth fruits of diverse hues? In the mountains, there are white, red of diverse hues, and, and pitchy, and, and a type of pitchy black. So when it's speaking of this judud here, it actually means um, uh, diverse hues. It's like a stripe. It could also be used as a stripe, striped mountains. And it says that we have made striped mountains with red color, white color, a type of gray, black, different hues. Uh, and it mentions these striped mountains. Okay, and people read it in the Arabian Peninsula and, you know, mashallah, uh, their mountains are very plain because they don't have a lot of vegetation. There's no snow on the top, right? So it's very gray type of volcanic lava uh, type mountains. But look at this. And this is not a painting. This is not a painting. Now remember what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, right? That he, uh, you know, developed this, right? We brought this forth, right? Reds, whites. Stripes. This is literally the, the, the Zangi Dangxia landform in Gansu province in China. Is that real? This is real. 
This is a real mountain now. Here's another look at that. See the people there who are coming to visit it? This one makes it more real to you when you see the people there, because that's like a tourist platform, and you look at the mountains. Look at that. And you can look this up now. You can, you can Google it. Uh, this is amazing. I mean, if you go, if this is something to go to China for, right? <laughs> Other than to buy some Chinese goods. Look at this. This is unbelievable. So it's literally what was spoken about in the book, and the Muslims in the early days had no clue of this. They had no clue that this red, white, black, gray, blue type of striped uh, mountains actually existed. They just accepted it. But now, because of our advanced communication and travel, uh, and this is a road. See the road going through it? Imagine going through there. It's like, you know, amazing thing. Like, you'd think you're on drugs or something, like psychedelic LSD or something. <laughs> yeah, it's like a painting. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I. I haven't gone into the science. There's something to do with um, the minerals, and it's, some, it's something that comes out of it that turns it into these colors. I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's something that must be falling down in certain ways. And um, if, if you can, you can later on look it up tonight and see what it is. It's, it's amazing. You can get a lot of good shots online too of this. And they actually had another one in Peru. This one here is not as, as, as dramatic as the one in China. This is, this is not a good picture. But they have a set in, in, in Peru as well, on the Andes. Striped mountains. So th this is something which, again, was not known, obviously, by Arabs in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, it's in the book. It's in the book. And now we, we can see it. Now, another area we want to look at, and this is an amazing thing. And, you know, we have a lot of stories that we grew up, many of you grew up watching Superman and uh, Supergirl, Superwoman, right? And Kryptonite, right? From Krypton, right? The planet Krypton, you all know the story of Superman, right? And, um, but this is, True story. Where does iron come from? Hadid. And this is so important that in the Quran there is a chapter called Surah Al Hadid, the chapter of the iron. It's literally a chapter. Where did iron come from? So most people would say, well, it's a metal, it was just in the ground and people dug it up and you know, whatever. Now, when science looks at this now, right, this is what they found out. Number one, that iron makes up about 5% of the Earth's crust. You'll find different forms of iron. And in the core of the Earth, that would be the gray circle in the middle. That would be the core of the Earth. That this core is actually most as iron and uh, nickel, another metal called nickel. Right, that makes up the core of the Earth. Okay? And you see the other layers that are there, molten substances and whatnot. The scientific position, this is not our story. It's not a Greek fable. 
scientists believe that iron is an extraterrestrial element that was sent down, it was not formed on Earth. And it's not from Krypton. It was not formed on Earth. They cannot uh, explain the origin and their, their position is, and you go to Wikipedia, go to scientific journals, it's extraterrestrial. And literally, it came down uh, as a meteorite, literally like a meteorite coming down to the surface of the Earth. Now, the core of the Earth, how did that happen? Some scientists, go. I'm not a scientist, but they go back to the beginning. They believed that the Earth was like there was a big bang and everything cracked and it's from the iron from that, that the core of the Earth, which got molten, that's where it came from. But that's not what's on the surface. It wasn't on the surface. And it was because of meteorites hitting the Earth. So it came down on the Earth, right? And it formed. This here is uh, probably the largest intact meteorite in the world, in Namibia. It's 60 tons, 2.7 meters, the Hoba meteorite. It's probably about the largest one that they have that's literally intact. Uh, now, in, in, this is in um, uh, southwest Africa. Southwest Africa. Okay, and meteorites are in different uh, places. Meteorites have done a lot of things in history. They say that even some of the changes, um, there's enough proof to say that there were dinosaurs living on Earth. And one of the theories of the dinosaurs becoming extinct is that a meteorite hit the Earth and, and the explosion was so huge that it caused a major change in temperature and a terrible winter, it killed out the dinosaurs. So all you have is bones now. Because if dinosaurs and human beings lived together on Earth, we wouldn't have a chance. You've seen Jurassic Park before. <laughs> we wouldn't have a chance, but that's not Jurassic Park, that's reality. And you know what di dinosaurs are the most dangerous ones? Come on, basketball fans. Raptors. Raptors, right? You know why raptors are so dangerous? Because they work as a group, right? They communicate with each other as a group, and they move in. The T-Rex is monstrous in size, but in terms of killing nature, the ability to kill, the raptors are the most dangerous group. And... Um, this is a meteorite on the right. That's like an iron, you know, like a piece of thing you know, that came down. Now, when they, the scientists also checked, and they found that the energy of the early solar system was not sufficient to produce iron. You could see all types of metals and things being formed, but it could not produce iron. The energy to form one atom of iron was calculated to be four times as much as the energy of the entire solar system. This is a serious thing that you have when you got that little piece of iron there. That's probably some kind of plastic. But if you got a real piece of dagger or a piece of iron, right? It's a serious substance that's in it. And when you actually go deep inside of it, 
and break it down, there's, there's no way that it could have been formed on Earth. Okay? So the question is, and scientists are not going to say, they don't want to talk about God, right? They don't want to say there's a superpower up there. But yet, they're recognizing this is an element which, is, which takes all the energy more than the whole solar system to form. We can't form it, and it came down to Earth from the outside. Look at this. What is it leading to? What is it leading us to? Surat al-Hadid, right? And it's telling us very clearly. لَقَدْ أَرْسَلْنَا رُسُلُنَا بِالْبَيِّنَاتِ وَأَنزَلْنَا مَعَهُمُ الْكِتَابِ وَالْمِيزَانِ لِيَقُومَ لِيَقُومَ النَّاسُ بِالْقِسْتِ وَأَنزَلْنَا الْحَدِيدِ فِيهِ بَأْسٌ شَدِيدٌ وَمَنَافِعُ لِلنَّاسِ Okay, so this is the key point right there. وَأَنزَلْنَا الْحَدِيدَ فِيهِ بَأْسٌ شَدِيدٌ وَمَنَافِعُ لِلنَّاسِ وَلِيَعْلَمَ اللَّهُ مَنْ يَنْصُرُهُ وَرُسُلُهُ بِالْغَيْبِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ قَوِيٌّ عَزِيزٌ And so in this verse, it is saying, And we sent aforetime our messengers with clear signs. And we sent down with them the book and the balance. Justice between right and wrong. We have the ability to just between right and wrong. We have a choice, right? Every human being. Okay? That men may stand forth in justice. We sent down iron, in which is material for mighty war, as well as many benefits for mankind. That Allah may test who it is that will help unseen him and his messengers, for Allah is full of strength, exalted in might, and able to enforce his will. This is a powerful verse here, man. Look at this. Look what it's saying. This is explaining the story. The scientist said, this is an element which can, nobody can create. The whole energy of the universe, four times over, of the whole solar system, cannot create one atom of iron. Not even one atom. But it came down. It came down to the earth, and Allah told the story that we set down this. Uh, we gave humanity guidance. We gave people the ability to do right or to do wrong, and then we sent them hadith. Right? And, you know, you can find smelting, um, what they call smelting centers uh, that date back like 3000 BC, where people actually started smelting uh, in certain parts of the world. In Egypt, they smelted. In the Middle East, they smelted. In India, in other parts, they smelted. And the unfortunate thing about people is that you know, the majority of the times, when the people got the Hadid, what did they do with it? They start conquering the other people. Because now your sticks, or you're fighting with stones, or if you found some of the elements in the earth, like bronze, you can find gold, you can find metals in the earth. When you strike with your Hadid, you smash everything in sight. 
nothing can stop a weapon, right, made of iron. And so they used it. Warfare came. You see, as the Quran is talking about, right, we sent down the iron, which, which in it, right, it can make war and also great benefits. There's great benefits that come out of this. And I can understand this. My, own, my father was a welder in Massachusetts, and they used to make um, the ships for the American uh, military, for the Navy in Quincy, a place called Quincy, Massachusetts. And he used to work on big uh, skyscrapers, right? He's a, he's a welder. So this is like they call in Arabic, Haddad. It's somebody who smelts. So there's great benefit. Look at the benefits that we have gotten out of, out of Hadith. The bridges, the, the, the boats, the aircrafts. So many benefits for humanity, but at the same time, terrible war and killing can come out of this. And so this is a test. It's a test. And it's interesting. The Arabs would look back also at the end of this. Inna laha qawiyun aziz. So usually uh, at the end of verses, the description of Allah, his names that he gives you at the end, has something to do with the verse. So here it says that Allah is qawi, which means powerful and strong, and also aziz. I mean, he's translating it as you know, exalted in might, but Aziz also means, you know, there's no need of you, right? He's exalted, and he can do what he, Allah can do what he wants. So now that Allah is saying, I'm giving you a test. I'm putting this test in your hands, right? It is Hadid. And so this verse here from Surah Al-Hadid is actually, um, um, some of the scientists, it was a big conference in Jeddah, and they called um, this Dr. Armstrong and a number of great scientists from Europe. Uh, they called them to the conference and they presented them this, this verse. And they were shocked. They were amazed. Because the knowledge of the fact that this has come down to earth is only a recent phenomena that we understand this now. We just sort of took it for granted it was around. But what was the origin of it? What is the makeup of it? We did not know this. But 1,400 years ago, it was revealed to a man in the middle of the desert in Mecca, Arabian Peninsula. He was ummi, unleaded person. So he did not study scientific books. He did not go to university. He was not even familiar with the science of the Romans or the science of the Persians, but yet, this information comes. This is I'jaz. This is the miraculous nature of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is what we're looking at um, when we are looking at these verses. So I want to open up the floor for any questions uh, anybody may have concerning um, uh, this particular verse or any of the things that are around it. Floor is open for any questions. So what we want to do also in this class is to give you a chance to ask any general questions. So this, if something happens during the week and you have a general question about Islam, uh, about something, if I can answer it, I'll answer it. This is a chance you can also uh, answer these questions as well. It's like in a workshop type of thing you can get an answer. So are there any general questions that anybody has?
This is a format that some of you may not be aware of, but it is open now uh, during this class, open to answer any questions that you may have. Floor is open. Yeah, so basically, it is basically Tuesday night. Okay. Yeah, yeah. there are some other classes that go on on other days, mm -hmm. but this one is mainly Tuesday night we keep it. Yeah. Any other general questions uh, anybody has uh, concerning this? So inshallah, we want to look, we want to bring out uh, some of the amazing, uh, miraculous points in the book that you might never have heard of before. Also, we want to look at the book from the point of view of believers. In other words, there are certain formulas inside of the Quran that you can actually apply to your life today. It can actually answer questions about what's happening in the world today. And we looked at some in our previous semester. We want to continue this to give you actually um, formulas for living that actually come out of the book. That's a part of Ijaz that you don't normally see um, when you get books dealing with the miraculous nature of the Quran. And they generally look at the science. But we want to look at it from the linguistic point of view, the meanings, right? The content. And it's not just content to be amazed with, but how can you use it in your life? So we want to look at some of the, uh, some sections that have this content base. Uh, also, to give you the best you know, out of the Quran. Okay, any other final questions that anybody has? Um, we don't generally, but this is a good, good point though. We, we, yeah, I mean, generally what we do is, you know, we, we have interaction you know, questions, you know, surrounding the things and answers or whatever. But, you know, it, it is something to consider, um, you know, if a person does a project coming out of it, uh, it is something to consider. But we, we haven't done that before in our classes. Um, I don't have any Yeah, yeah. I mean, generally, um, what we have done in the past you know, is give a certificate of participation so that you, you know, you have, you know, participated in this class, you know, um, signed by the teacher, you know, whatever, so that, you know, if that's presented to other Islamic studies teachers, they know the institute and they know the teacher that you participated in this class after a certain number. But, but this is a very good point uh, in terms of the projects and definitely encouraged if somebody, you know, has any ideas about projects. But generally we don't, at, in, this, in this particular class. But one part that you can take advantage of is the question and answer period. That's the interactive session. So if you have certain personal questions, things dealing with Islam, something you didn't understand during the week, you know, even outside of this, right? It, we have an open period also where you can have that uh, answered as well. Okay? Okay, so inshallah we'll close the class and, and we'll see you next week. Have a safe journey home. Wassalamu alaikum wa